you know, things happen when, when they do, and you either choose to do something with it or you pass. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and interesting people to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Sam Steinbaum. Sam was the chief learning officer for Hewlett-Packard. His organization was responsible for all the learning and development activities across the company, including leadership, management, sales, and organizational effectiveness. Prior to that, Sam was the vice president and general manager for America's consumer products, which included the HP and Compaq desktop and notebook PC products. Under Sam's leadership, Revenue for these segments grew to $6 billion. Since leaving HP, Sam expanded his preschool business, The Wonder Years, where he is the CEO, to currently operate four schools and in the process of building the fifth site, all in the Bay Area. The Wonder Years currently serves around 500 children across their different facilities. Sam is on the board of a number of tech companies, including Assetech, a public company making liquid cooling devices for computers, where he is serving as the chairman, and Crossair, which is a private company making components for PCs. I initially met Sam in 2003, and I shared the story of this occasion in my book, Create New Futures. After participating in an executive effectiveness seminars I led for the AMA, the American Management Association, Sam brought me to work with his direct team when he led the consumer group. Sam's team was the first HP group I worked with, and we continued to collaborate when he was the chief learning officer. HP has gone through many changes and is now two separate companies, HPE and HPI, and 14 years later, I'm still helping teams in the two separate companies. In practical terms, Sam has opened this first door for me. In this conversation, you will learn how Sam approaches business decisions, what are the options available for you after a corporate life, and how to design your future. Here, then, is my conversation with Sam. So, Sam, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. Pleasure. There is just so much that I want to explore with you today, including your professional journey and your time at HP and how you designed your uh, post-corporate life. But let me first ask you, what's exciting for you today? uh, What are the new things you are engaging in these days? So in addition to to managing uh, my my current businesses, which are the preschools, which I do together with my wife, and um, the boards that I'm involved with in terms of high tech, as well as the, the commercial properties that I that I actively manage as part of my investment portfolio. And the latest thing that I've uh, gone into is a laundromat business, which I opened uh, with my son in the last uh, few months. Right. So when you say laundromat business, it doesn't sound very sexy. So I'm sure there are good reasons why you launched that business with 
with your son? How do you, what's your narrative and, and what's your rationale? Well, it's a, it's a business that um, is um, uh, fairly steady. Once you get it going, you know, you can actually, uh, you know, grow it. And so it's, it's a kind of business where you're providing a service. You know, if you do a good job and you offer something that's uh, hopefully better than what's uh, currently available, um, you will get a, a steady stream of, of uh, customers and it's a very scalable business. So it's kind of business that if, um, if you do a good job with, um, you can take it to, um, to several locations and then achieve a lot of leverage in terms of advertising and a number, a number of the other operating components of the business can be, can be leveraged as you grow and make the business more successful. It's also a fairly low employee required type of business. And so, you know, we're in a business like the preschools where there's a lot of employees and when you have a lot of employees, there are a number of challenges associated with that. The laundromat business is a business which um, requires a lot uh, less employees, and so there's uh, certain advantages uh, related to a business of that type. And obviously, the idea in this case is to support your your son. That's uh, part of the reason, or the main reason, why you have done that. Correct? Absolutely. I'm uh, hoping that he learns what it is to run a business and what it is to grow a, a business of his own. I mean, we're partners in the business, and, um, you know, we started basically from scratch. And so any success that we achieve together, obviously, um, you know, he gets uh, as much credit as, as I do. In some areas, he's more knowledgeable than I am, despite my experience. And so it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to um, learn from each other and apply what, uh, you know, he has from his youth and his energy and his knowledge in terms of, website development and a number of other related social media type um, activities, which he's better at than I am, and together with my, you know, broader experience in terms of, um, you know, managing a business, uh, the cash flow analysis, um, and stuff like that. Right, right. Very nice. So you have a, a fascinating career journey that I'd like to trace. And so uh, let me ask you first if you can describe the setting of your upbringing. Where did you grow up and what was it like? Well, I grew up in uh, South America. And I was born in Colombia, you know, which is at the tip of South America. And I was basically raised there until the time when I finished uh, high school, when I then came to the U.S. to go to university. And what was the first job or the first business experience that uh, lets you discover and, and realize that, A, you are interested in business and, and B, that you have talent for business? When, what was that first experience? So our first business was actually when I was 13 years old. We opened a jewelry business in Colombia. At that time, my older brother had finished college, and he wanted to go into the jewelry business. And so, you know, when uh, when he started that, I actually joined him as a partner. And there were certain activities which um, I was, as a thirteen-year-old, I was able to to do, and uh, basically learn about what it is to run a business from a very early age. So when you reflect on that first experience, what would you say are, are the one or two most important formative insights and experiences that you carried forward? 
Well, probably one of the, the very fundamental things had to do with the customer service, you know, how to make sure that people are comfortable uh, coming into your business and, uh, you know, dealing with them, uh, giving them what they want, and yet at the same time be able to uh, generate a profit by, you know, having products that uh, are, of des you know, are desirable for those customers and yet, uh, you know, enable you to get a, a decent margin. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing had to do with how to, how to optimize the amount of investment and inventory that you need in a business. In a business like a jewelry business, you can have infinite amount of inventory and you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in, in product available. And yet someone comes in and wants something that you don't have. Hmm. And so no matter how much inventory you have, there's always going to be more and more things that you'd like to have. And then how to understand how to manage that inventory, what kinds of things sell, what kinds of things move quickly and rotate. Um, that was a, a tremendous learning because in the jewelry business, um, at least at that time, the average rotation of your inventory was maybe once or twice per year. And so if you had, say, half a million dollars in inventory, you would sell something between a half a million and a million a year. And getting that rotation to increase a little bit made a big difference in terms of the bottom line of the business. Right. And, and you were at that early age, you were running the books, you were doing the books of, of that little business. And uh, th that was the first formative experience in terms of managing the cash flow. Is that correct? That's right. Um, every evening, uh, my mother would bring the books to the house and we would basically track all the sales and um, and all the revenues coming in, as well as all the expenses. And we had a spreadsheet that my father had uh, created for us to basically manage the accounting uh, of the business, which, uh, which I basically was responsible for you know, for the first uh, several years after we started the business. Right. Probably a more formative and more important experience than going to business school. But uh, tell me then, how did you get from there to HP? What's the journey that brought you to Hewlett-Packard? So I moved to the U.S. after I finished high school, and I went to University of California in Santa Cruz to study economics and mathematics, which is what I graduated in. And when I finished those two degrees, I decided I wanted to get an MBA. I went straight to Purdue, where I got an MBA in finance and, and strategic management. And from there, I was lucky enough that um, at the time, HP was a growing company and it was recruiting uh, at Purdue. And um, knowing that I wanted to come to the, to the West Coast, um, I uh, made a big effort in uh, talking to them and getting them interested in, in uh, making me an offer, basically, which, which luckily they did. And so when I finished my, my graduate school, I moved back to California to start working at HP back then at the ripe age of uh, 21, almost 22. And what was your first role at HP and, and how did you evolve then your journey uh, through uh, the transitions, these early first transitions in a large company? Well, so at HP, I was um, fortunate to be allowed to move into different roles and different functions over the years. And I started in finance. I was a financial analyst and um, I did that for a few years. After that, uh, they sent me to a country in South America uh, as a finance manager. So I 
basically became the treasury manager for the country. Uh, even though it was a small country, it was a tremendous experience. I also was able to meet my wife while I was uh, there for a few years, so that was quite productive. <laughs> and, yes. and then after, after that, uh, we came back to the U.S. I actually switched into marketing, and I worked in a number of different um, marketing roles, product marketing, uh, forecasting. Um, and, and again, I was lucky that I moved into a fast-growing business, uh, which um, was entering some of the new new, new areas of, of printing. HP at that at that time was just starting to become the leader in the printing business that it, you know became over the over the next following years. And I was able to ride that wave um, through a number of different positions, um, eventually becoming the director of marketing of uh, one of the divisions, one of the printing divisions that was based out of Singapore. So the HP actually moved my family to Singapore for uh, three years. At that time, we had small children, and that was a tremendous experience. After returning from, um, from Singapore to the U.S., I actually moved into the consumer PC business. So, well, be, so, so just before you go to the consumer PC, let me just ask you about this experience of, of going to work in the region, spending a couple of few, a few years in Singapore, what was that experience like for you? What are the key learnings? This is early days. Uh, Asia Pacific is just coming uh, into the, the kind of massive growth that it will make in, in the years later. What was that experience like for you? Well, so uh, there were two elements of, of key learning in that, uh, in that experience. First of all, was the expo- exposure to the region itself, because even though the job was a worldwide job, a lot of the activities were taking place within the region itself. And so that was, that was great. And another key aspect of, of learning was related to how to develop a new product. We were at that time asked to go into a new area where HP was not um, participating in, which is wide, wide format printing. And uh, we basically had to do research to understand what were the features that people would want, what was the potential size of the market, um, you know, if we developed a product, what kind of price point uh, was the ideal price point that would uh, optimize the, the opportunity? And then the trade-off that we had to make in terms of which features to incorporate into the product and which ones maybe, even though maybe desirable, were too expensive and we couldn't put in. And so that whole process, uh, which included uh, a lot of market research and competitive research, and then working with the R&D team to kind of make trade-offs as we try to develop some of these new uh, products. Uh, that was uh, something that was new to me. Obviously, I had a, a team of people to do that. It wasn't just myself. Uh, but from a personal involvement, I was doing a number of things that were very unique. And then finally, I would say the, the people in Asia and the way that they work and the way that they interact with their manager is very different from the way that in the U.S. you're used to interacting with people. And so that was a tremendous learning as well in terms of getting a sense of, you know, how they, they take orders, how they react when you make comments. And I'll give you an example. In, in, in a meeting in, um, in Singapore, you know, if we would be talking about some thing that we were considering doing, if I would say in the meeting, and I learned this from experience, I didn't know it at the beginning, 
But I would say, oh, I think this is a great idea. I think we should do that. Uh, but I wasn't necessarily fully thinking through all the ramifications of that activity. Uh, then all of a sudden, I would walk out of the meeting, and a couple of days later, the team was like executing on, on what you know on what I said. And it was kind of like, well, you know, I just made a comment, but I wasn't necessarily thinking that we should shift the resources to do that. Yeah, but they they would just, you know, take something that I would say and then just move and go for it. And so I had to learn to uh, be careful in terms of what I said in meetings to avoid people assuming that that was a final decision that, that, that we had made and instead try to ask questions, try to ask for opinions of the other people so that uh, you know they were willing to share what they truly thought before they knew what my position was. Because once I stated what my position was, people would not want to um, argue against it or would not want to give reasons why I may be wrong. Right, right. And so along this journey, the whole reflective discovery of what is it like to manage people, what is it like to lead people, and what are the, the ways and practices and behaviors that ultimately will help you produce results through other people is something that becomes increasingly important as you progress in this journey from one role to a broader responsibility role and, and, and so on. Absolutely. Share, share some of the... At what point do you um, make a focus inquiry in yourself and, and you look to observe other effective leaders and what are some of the key practices that you've seen with other leaders that you have then worked to uh, make your own? Well, I would say it's an ongoing kind of a thing. I mean, from a very early on um, point when I became, I, I became a manager, a people manager at a very, very young age. I was probably 23 and I was managing a team of like, 12, 15 people in Venezuela. And so uh, I was managing people that are always a fair amount older than I was. And as a result, um, to some extent, there was um, resistance uh, to things that I would say just because I would look so young and I was fairly inexperienced. And so people had a hard time taking direction from a, such a young person. So I had to learn from a fairly young age, how to get people to get things done and yet not make them feel like they resented you know, whatever direction I was, I was giving them. But as you get a little bit older and a little bit more experienced, I would say it probably got easier, even though at, at that point, then you start becoming a manager of managers instead of managing people directly, you're managing people who are managing teams under them. And then, then at that point, some of the things that are, are critical go beyond just the interaction with the individuals that you're actually working with, but how to make sure that the broader organization understands the direction where you're trying to, uh, to go, how are you trying to um, measure your success, and, um, and how do you ensure that everyone gets aligned uh, on, that same, uh, on those same objectives. Right. And that then leads you to the GM role. What was different about being a general manager and what were some of the key practices that enabled you to be successful in, in the general manager role? 
Well, so coming back from Singapore, I switched into the consumer PC business, which is a very different business, obviously, than printers. In printers, the margins are very high. HP is the undisputed leader at that point. Um, HP is growing. Uh, the, the, the profitability of the printing division and the printing supplies that go with the printers is extremely high. Then I switched to the consumer PC business where the margins are actually very thin, where HP at that point wasn't uh, a market leader. I mean, it was a player, but it wasn't the main market leader. There were other other competitors that were bigger and stronger. And uh, profitability was very narrow. And it was a big challenge to try to improve profitability was one of our key objectives. And at that point, then I also got promoted to the general management role, which um, included a large proportion of um, operations type of activities, whether it's uh, planning for demand for the different distributors and, and partners who we work with, and uh, you know managing from a very tactical standpoint, week to week, um, how many ads we're gonna be showing up, you know, how many products we're gonna be sold at each um, location of each of our partners. And you know, dealing with partners, like Best Buy um, or um, other partners that have hundreds of stores. And you need to make sure that the product is at the right place at the right time in order for it to move through. And then invariably, no matter how good you are at forecasting, you're going to end up with products that don't sell to the level that you were hoping for. And then you need to either lower the price or do a promotion or figure out how to redistribute the product to other places to make sure that you can move it through before it gets stale. In the PC business, as opposed to the printing business, the products have a fairly short life. And after a few months, basically the product is obsolete. And there's gonna be something new coming out that's gonna be better and cheaper, very likely. And so you don't wanna get caught with a product that's not moving. And so you have to get, get it sold out pretty quickly. And so that whole um, requirement, which was extremely different from the printing business, um, forced us as, as a team to work extremely closely with our partners and to manage um, the whole operations part of that business extremely uh, tightly. So if you, if you try to codify to the, the one or two or three key principles that enabled you at that time to run this operation. It was, it was a, a very focused execution operational role where you cannot afford to make uh, dramatic mistakes because uh, it can cost you a lot. And uh, you somehow uh, are leading together with, with a broad team and you need those um, inputs and contributions from different functions and different teams and, and you need to drive this business with that type of rigor and focus? What, what are the one or two key principles that are guiding you at this phase with this role? Um, I would say one of the things that we, that we did in that business that was unique is we had a weekly meeting where all the different people from all the functions would come together and we would review all the data and discuss what was working, what was not working, and then we would make decisions on what needed to be done on the spot and then execute it 
basically within within the next day. So the, the speed to execution and speed to decisions, even, even with partial data, we had to make a decision because the cost of not making a decision was just going to get bigger if you kept on waiting to get the perfect data. That whole approach to having to manage a business uh, was uh, something that we became very good at and the whole organization was very uh, in tune in order to be able to execute that effectively. Right. So speed to decision and speed to execution and the tool, the medium you developed to achieve those outcomes and to implement these operating principles were these weekly meetings. And, and they were a bit like a situation room type sessions where all the data is, is available and you can make in the moment decisions that immediately are taken forward. Absolutely. And the, the teams knew that this meeting always happened at the same time every Friday in the morning, and the teams would gather all the data in order to be ready. And because we always conducted the meeting in the exact same manner, everyone knew when it was their turn to present the information. And then after the discussion, uh, we would basically make the decisions on the spot. Then at some point, uh, Mark Head uh, is asking you to take the chief learning officer role, which is a very different transition from leading a business to, um, you know, moving from uh, printing to, to computing side of the house. And what was that transition like for you? Well, so first of all, um, the reason why that opportunity came to me is throughout the different roles that I've had at HP, whether it was in the printing side or in the PC side, one thing that I always uh, put a lot of effort and paid a lot of attention to was developing my team, trying to make sure that I always had people who could take over my job and try to make sure that the, the people that were working for me understood where they were trying to go in terms of their career and help them uh, achieve that. And so people development was something that was ingrained into my, um, my way of operating from an early stage at HP partly because when HP was growing very fast, there was a tremendous need for people to be ready to take on new, new roles and new opportunities. And when, when, um, when that happens, um, you have to be ready because you can't wait and then hope to be, get, be ready later because otherwise you just miss the opportunities. And so growing and developing people was something that I was um, very focused on and I really cared about throughout um, several of these uh, big roles that I had in the business. And to the point where when we first met and we started working together, um, some of the programs that, um, that I developed and that you helped me with uh, were things that uh, caught attention at, at senior levels because when um, HP would do these yearly surveys of employees to understand how people were doing and what was the morale and how how happy or not happy people were with their with their jobs and with the company, I consistently had uh, very high scores. And so when the when the when the high scores would come, and people would ask why you know how do you achieve such high scores, it always came down to we really put a lot of attention to building the people and developing the people within the team. And um, at that time, when when Mark heard 
um, was looking for some drastic change in the way that people were being developed, uh, my name came up through the HR organization. And so I was asked if I would consider taking the role of, of chief learning officer, even though I've never really contemplated that as a career move or even felt I, I had the right background um, for that kind of a job. Let me capture and rethread some of the, through some of the things you said there. The first is, is actually an exceptionally important point, which you have shared with me back then, which is that you have indeed always prepared people to succeed you and, and take your role. And it, it's an interesting and important point uh, to focus on because I have seen managers and leaders that operate on the other end of the continuum. They will not create somebody who is ready to take the role almost as a way of validating and strengthening their position uh, to make sure that the organization or the company depends on them. And you said to me back then, I remember, that you, you're never worried, you're never concerned about whether there is yet a new role for you. So I, I would simply highlight that part of the psychological profile and a personal, personal profile in this is, is being confident, being mature psychologically and as a leader to in, almost say to trust the process of an organization and to trust the process of a company that, that if you're doing in that sense the right thing, serving the, the need of the organization by building succession, by taking care of that need, it will take care of, its, of you and time and again, indeed, new opportunities open for you. So I'd, I'd highlight that first. And second, that indeed, you're right, you, you were investing significantly uh, in, in your people. And so when you and I met at the time, uh, you were still running the North American Consumer uh, Group, and you participated in this AMA seminar that I led. This was a program that was titled Executive Effectiveness with values. And at the end of this five-day introspective journey, you said to me, I've been to many programs and this was different to anything I've experienced before. Do you think you can HP this one for me? To which, uh, of course, I replied, sure, but what do you mean HP this for you? And you said, well, can you do the five days program in three? And a few weeks later, we met with your team and we continued to collaborate when you move to your next role as a chief learning officer. And, uh, and I share in, in my book uh, about the significance of this, because obviously for a solo consultant to have a champion in the chief learning officer role of a Fortune 20 company, which I think HP was at the time, uh, it is almost as good as it gets. And uh, because at the time you have had essentially the opportunity to work with any, anybody, any coach, any consultant that you uh, wanted to. And that collaboration between you and I continued uh, through your, your tenure in, in this role. And I, I, first of all, I, I think it's your passion and your commitment to continue to invest uh, in, in your team. And uh, I thank you for it. And my question is, so what was it that kept our collaboration going for such a long time? Well, I, I um, felt like the kinds of things that uh, you were good at 
um, enabled us as a team to work more effectively together. And so a lot of uh, a high-performing team, a lot of what makes a high-performing team uh, uh, achieve that, that, uh, that type of performance has to do, first of all, with people who are able to trust each other, who are able to be open with each other, who are able to disagree with each other, and yet at the same time get to the point where you make a decision that you're going in this direction and that everyone is going to support that direction even if they don't completely agree or if that's not the choice they would have made, they got a chance to uh, object or to raise their concerns or whatever uh, it was that they, they felt like. However, once a team decided that that is what it was going to focus on, then they would not be trying to undermine or uh, make it not work, which my experience showed in many teams is what made, um, made it difficult to achieve uh, amazing results. While when the team was committed to achieving a task, even if there were issues or where there were problems, or even if there was potentially a better way to do it, that's the way we we're going to do it. If everyone was working together to make it happen, the odds were always higher that that was going to be accomplished. So that's very much a product of the design principle that I've implemented, which is what I now call the alternation, the alternating of the foreground and the background, where the foreground represents the business decisions, the strategies, the priorities, the set of uh, initiatives that we will lead with the organization to achieve the future state that we are hoping to create. That's the what conversations. But that we don't just engage with this as a business conversation period. Rather, the design of the experience, whether it will be two or three or four day experience, we alternate it between these conversations and more the background conversations, which were around who are we as people? Who are we as a leadership team? What is it that will enable us to perform at an even higher level? What are the personal passions and leadership styles around the table that we have to recognize? And how do we each learn differently? And how can we recognize and appreciate that so that we can together produce a, a bigger uh, outcome and, and a bigger result because we appreciate the unique talents that are around the table? That's very much the guiding principle that I brought to these experiences that I designed for you. And then for many teams all around uh, the world, for HP uh, top talent and, and leadership teams, uh, when you were the chief learning officer and, and somebody would call you and you say, hey, uh, I have this and that need, and you said, well, I, I know somebody that can help you solve to that need. Exactly. And, um, you know, not that, that you're the only person that can do that, because obviously there are a number of people that could probably do something similar in, in different ways and, and, and different approaches. Uh, but I, obviously I was exposed to what, the, what you were able to do. And um, I, I particularly valued the ability that you had to create an environment for the group of people that were taking one of the seminars or one of the sessions with you to be able to open themselves to the other people in the, in the group. And 
in, in that process, enabling others to kind of see into a window of theirs, which normally would not be open. And it was always amazing to me how you could work with someone for two, three, four years in a team, you know, do all kinds of things together, travel together, do many things, go drinking, whatever. And yet there were some elements of what made that person be different and what, you know, what enabled you to work with that person in a much more effective manner that just doesn't come out. And sometimes through these seminars where you go out for two, three, four days and focus on what's important to you and what's important to the team and how to, to learn how to trust other people, that all of a sudden someone would share something, they would go like, wow, so this person has this issue with their relative, which is a big deal and it impacts how they behave. And I never knew that. And yet from that session, now I could interact with this person to a whole deeper level that I couldn't before for whatever reason. That's right. I actually distinctly remember after the first session with your direct reports, when we did the closing ritual, the closing circle, one of the people around the table said, there are few people around this table that I've known for 16 years. That's one, six, 16 years. And in the last three days, I've learned to appreciate them more than I have over the last 16 years. So that's the kind of transformative impact that we're able to create when we choreograph these experiences that when the following week, people need to execute, deliver together, work against aggressive objectives and compete uh, and enable people to operate just at a whole new level. That's right. And, and Sam, then something else happens which keeps us in touch and in conversation uh, for a long time, which is you decide to uh, leave HP and we just stayed friends and stayed in the conversation. But what I was particularly interested and curious about was how you were able to design your post-corporate life. And I'd like to ask you about it in a minute, but first let me just trace a little back and ask you, how did the wonder years come about? What was the story that led you into the, the preschool's business? Here you are, a senior executive in a... Uh, HP in a technology space, and all of a sudden you, you're getting involved in a preschool's business, which is obviously a great business you are learning, but what brought you to it? Well, when I started with the Wonder Years preschools, um, I was not a senior executive. I was actually a fairly junior employee at HP, and I'd only been there for about a, a year or so, and I was a financial analyst and was not really making um, that much money. Um, and so it, it was. It was very early on you know, when when we started that business. It's uh, already almost uh, thirty years. And so when when we did that, it actually was uh, kind of by just just kind of by by st stroke of like uh, of luck. It wasn't something that that I said. Oh, I, I think I should go into the preschool business. Just like I, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily um, thinking, you know, with my son we should definitely open a laundromat. We had been looking at different businesses and we had been looking at doggy daycare. We had been looking at uh, storage. We had been looking at laundromat. We had been looking at a number of different businesses that sometimes things happen when they happen. And in, in your book, you have a, a chapter about windows of opportunity that open up. 
And sometimes, you know, things happen when, when they do, and you either choose to do something with it or you pass. And in the preschool uh, direction, it was basically a coworker at HP whose wife wanted to open a preschool, and they did not have the funding to be able to, to get it going. And so he asked me if I would loan him the money to do it. And I said, well, I won't loan you the money, but I will partner with you and I will take a percentage equity in the business. And I will then provide you the funding, which, which I did. At the time, it wasn't really that much, that much money to start the first preschool back then in a rented facility. And so, you know, with a fairly modest amount of money, we got the business going. And for about the first 10 years of that business, um, this co-worker's friend, she basically ran the business and she's the one that basically created a lot of, a lot of the things that that business was all about. And so I can't really take credit for creating that business at all other than just funding it for the initial 10 years. Right. And, and then uh, how did you develop the business? At what stage do you go from the first preschool to, to more than that? Right. So from the very beginning, the idea that we had discussed was, uh, you know, this business uh, is, is a good business, uh, but you probably need two or three in order to make enough money not to have to work. And so my thinking was always, okay, how do we, how do we build something that if for whatever reason I either leave HP or I get fired from HP or I can't find a job or something happens, you know, I have enough income that I can survive and be comfortable. And for that, we probably needed two or three preschools um, at that point was my, my expectation. And so, you know, we, we talked about that and we agreed on that. And yet, um, you know, one of the, the, the key aspects of expanding the preschool was the property itself. And from early, from an early stage, I felt strongly that given that that business is very location dependent, it would, it would be better to own the property instead of renting the property. And so that required a much more significant investment. And yet it provided the business with a tremendous competitive advantage over time. And so we started looking for properties to buy yeah, maybe I should say that for the first 10 years, I wasn't that involved in that business. Yeah, but we had talked about growing it, but it, didn't never really, it was never really that successful growing while I had my partners for a number of different reasons. At some point, you know, my partner got offered a, a job at HP to move to South America. And when he decided to move and he and his wife were going to go there, they wanted to sell the business. And so when they decided they wanted to sell the business, I said, well, I don't want to sell the business, so I'll just buy you out. And I just kept the business basically for me and my wife. And at that point is when we decided, okay, now that we own this business, we will make the investment, we will buy some properties, and we will expand the business but on properties that we own. And that turned out to have been a tremendously smart decision in retrospect because we we found properties that were well-suited for the business, which is not easy to do. And we then developed them and made them best in class. And so we created these schools that were very, very nice compared to what was available. In that business, a lot of people rent. And so when people rent, they tend not to make the facility very nice because they don't own it. Once you buy the property and you make it really nice, when customers come to see it, they actually not only hopefully like the program, but they also think, 
well, this is a nice facility which is run very well. And so you know, that op- opened a, a whole other side of the business, which was the real estate. Right. And, right. And, and the real estate ended up being not just for preschools, but also for other investments. Because over the years, as I was looking for properties to open preschools, in the process of finding a property that was well-suited for a preschool, which has a lot of requirements, a lot of limitations, I would occasionally run into a property that didn't work for a preschool. But after seeing 20 properties, I would say, wow, this property is not suited for a preschool, but it's a great deal. And then I would buy that property and and basically created this portfolio of commercial properties, um, which I built over time and became in itself a whole other business. Right. So since the program, my podcast show is called Create New Futures, let me highlight the the, the key principles in, in this story because actually very important. First, Quite earlier on, you, at an early stage, you decided to focus on your financial future and you were proactive about it and you created for yourself another revenue source, another revenue stream other than your corporate career, both for defensive reasons in case something was going to happen, but also to position yourself in a way that you will be free to whenever you wanted to free yourself up from the corporate life, there will be enough of a revenue generation engine for you to support your lifetime. Uh, number one. Number two, you then as you develop this business and it provided with cash flow, you increasingly moved also into the, the real estate investment and the real estate uh, portfolio position. And I remember when we talked about this so at some one of those conversations is when I codified in my mind the idea of a portfolio life. A portfolio life I recognized then was what a senior executive who retired from a company can do. And, and I actually recognized at the time that there were five or six main paths that people who retired from uh, a corporate role could choose to take. And let me just run them by you because I think you implemented your at least two or three of these. And the first is the entrepreneur life, the entrepreneur option. And you obviously developed that both in the real estate case and also in the wonder years and then in other things you have chosen to do. I've also seen in the second path that some corporate uh, retirees, if they're in a position and if they're interested and they generated enough uh, for themselves, they can actually move into the VC or the angel position where they make investments in small or uh, very small startups and obviously higher risk kind of an engagement, but some people choose to play in this arena. The third path is one of the consultants. Some people retired from the corporate role and they actually want to stay engaged and continue to contribute and they choose to find a way to, if not a full-time consultant, be engaged in a part-time consulting based on their network, based on their personal brand and reputation and it provides them an opportunity to continue to stay engaged for a good number of years. The fourth path is one of the teacher, teacher, mentor, coach, 
This is, I've seen this with people who merely want to stay engaged and contribute, not necessarily for financial reason, but they feel that if they can engage with younger people and guide and mentor, it keeps them engaged and energized. And the fifth one, which you also uh, applied yourself to, is this idea of a board member and be- being on a number of boards. So, so two questions here. First, which of these did you deliberately engage in? And, and even more broadly, did you think about the lifestyle and uh, the way you wanted to design your life? Or this was more a trial an error and a discovery based on opportunities that presented themselves for you? How did you go about designing your uh, post-corporate life? Well, I started thinking about that uh, very, very early on. Um, Given my my personality and my style, uh, I never really thought I would last uh, almost 25 years that I worked at HP. I, I thought for sure that, you know, within five or 10 years, I would be fired. (laughs) <laughs> why Why did you think that? Because I tend to be uh, more outspoken than your average person. I tend to be less willing to accept um, direction if I don't think it's uh, the right direction. And I'm willing to basically um, step up and risk my neck disagreeing with the more senior people when I feel like the approach they're taking is not the right one. And what was it in your upbringing or psychological profile that uh, afforded you the confidence to um, behave like this and and to uh, express uh, your opinions and and point of view uh, without fear of authority? Because we both know there are many people who walk every day in in corporate uh, corridors and, and go to meetings and play it safe and are not ready to present a contrarian point of view? No, I, I, it, it, there's nothing in my, in my psychological profile that made me be willing to do that necessarily. It's just the way you are. Right. And um, it's not that I did not think it was risky. I, I thought it was risky. Um, and I, in fact, I, I thought I would get fired a few different times throughout my career for things that I said or, or, or did. Uh, you know, or positions that I took uh, openly, uh, you know, which were not aligned with where upper management necessarily wanted to go at the time. You know, but I always felt like, you know, it's, it's a bit of a principle kind of a thing. You know, if, if you feel that something is better in a different way and you don't speak up and then later you know, it turns out that you should have, then the, I, I would have had a hard time um, living with that as a person. And, right. and even if it meant that my career was not as successful or even that my career ended, I just felt like, well, you know, if that happens, then I will find something else or I will figure it out. I, I guess I was never really too afraid. And luckily, you know, once my, my preschool business started being successful, which was, um, uh, you know, fairly early on in, in my career, I always felt like, well, you know, if worse comes to worse, I will survive. I will not, I will not, you know, go hungry. Right. And so, and even that though, be- I, may not, I may not make the same amount of money as I was making at HP at the time. I felt like I could, I could figure it out. And so, you- I was more willing to take risk and more willing to, um, to take, you know, take those positions that otherwise uh, other people may have been afraid of. 
Right, this business, your, your, your other business, the Wonder Years, provided you with a walkaway power, and um, you could speak your mind. You always knew you have had other options waiting for you on the sideline if you needed to apply yourself to it. Right, and it came to the point where the, the business, my, my own businesses that I had on the side, which I, when, when I initially started with them, were not really intended to take too much time, started taking a little bit more time, and started becoming a little bit more significant from my overall income and overall asset base, um, it, it actually became the other way around. At some point, the last few years that I was working at HP, it was kind of like, well, okay, I'm getting paid you know, a reasonable amount of money to be here, but I actually make as much or more in my own business. And rather than be here, if I was spending more time on my own business, that may be even better. And so why am I even here? So for the last few years, even though I was enjoying the work and that's why I stayed, um, a couple times I, I debated whether it's time to leave because uh, longer term, I actually felt my own, my own businesses had more potential, in particular real estate. And real estate, um, you know, when I, when I got into that and I started realizing that I could buy a building, fix it up, improve it, make it nicer, and significantly increase the cash flow and the, and the rental amount that the, that building could generate and generate positive cash flow. You know, it, it got to the point where working at a big company was starting not to make any sense. Right. 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 So through these both uh, personal experiences and corporate experiences, you are developing some kind of a an approach or a philosophy or a mental framework to decision-making and to, to business decisions. If you need to try to describe your thinking process and how you evaluate opportunities and, and the risks, how would you describe that process? Well, what's the potential in terms of the, the, the upside of, of a certain opportunity? Um, how much time will it take? Uh, how long will it take for it to, to have the potential be realized? And then who are you engaged with in that, um, in that business or that opportunity? And so a number of the startups or companies that I got involved with uh, outside of HP uh, were people that I had met socially or people who I interacted with, in some cases, people that I had worked with at HP in prior roles who were no longer at HP, were starting something and they wanted the, or they needed some investment. And so those are some of the, the opportunities that I went into first. Um, but I mean, I would say half the opportunities were not things that I was necessarily looking for or that I had a list of saying, you know, saying, I want to go into this. It was more like, I haven't seen this person for three years. We go to coffee. The person tells me, oh, I'm doing this. And by the way, I need some capital. Would you be interested? And then all of a sudden, you know, here's an opportunity. And, right. and, and, and here we go. So, it's, so I would say, I, I guess the way to see it is I'm always looking for something like that, but I'm not necessarily very uh, specific about what that business or who that person is. Right. You are, you have an, a, a wide, broad, open uh, radar dish for opportunities and you let opportunities find you rather than you chasing a, a specific opportunity. I love going out with the people that I used to work with a long time ago and having a coffee 
and talk about what they're doing and you know what you know what have they done since we used to interact together years back and you know what's working what's not working for them and um, you know through those kind of conversations sometimes opportunities come up and sometimes right. they don't and so again I don't go out to have coffee with someone thinking I'm going to invest with this person I go out with them thinking I'm just going to catch up to see what what they're doing and learn from them. In fact, the laundromat business came exactly through that kind of an exchange where someone that used to work with me at HP, um, she opened uh, a laundromat in Sacramento and then she opened a couple more and now she's got, I think, five of them. And, you know, over the years, I would go visit her and see how she was doing and she would explain to me how the business worked and how how she was uh, handling it and why she thought it was a good business and what you know, what to look for in that kind of a business. So she basically gave me an education on what that business was all about, which is why when the opportunity came up and this laundromat became available here in the Bay Area to buy with my son, I already had done a fair amount of uh, research on this industry and on this business, and I already understood what were the things that would make this business successful or not, or, or at least increase the odds of it being more successful or not. And so that's how I was able to then quickly say, hey, this opportunity looks interesting based on everything I've already learned over the last number of years, informally chatting with my friend, I think this is something that might make sense to do. Right. And you have stayed somewhat uh, very close actually to the, the Warren Buffett principle, which is only get into businesses that you understand that provide service that people will always need and the generate... Um, stable cash flow yeah which is you know a lot of businesses are like that so it's not like like the ones that i've selected are unique in that way yeah but you know every time you do go into something you need to think of so what are the competitive advantages that you're going to have in this business relative to what other people are doing how can you make how can you make the business be slightly more successful and what kind of angle can you take that is maybe something that is not currently being done that if it works could make the business be so much better than what the average business in this category uh, produces. Right. The other smart thing you've done was to get on the boards of a few companies. What would you say are the key learnings from these experiences from uh, sitting on the boards of, of two companies at the moment? Well, so sitting on, on company boards um, is tremendous uh, fun for me there's a there's a, a number of of advantages or or things that i get from it first of all um, i stay relevant in terms of the technology because these are tech companies and by uh, being involved with them i can see how the technology is progressing where things are going and uh, you know you keep your relevancy because in tech if you are not really aware of what's happening you become obsolete very quickly yeah and then Second of all, the, um, the people side of it, these companies are always uh, trying to upgrade their staff and make sure that their team is uh, effective. And so my network of, of people and my experience uh, developing people is something that has proven to be useful for these companies. And so this combination of business knowledge, people and network of people and then you know, be able to hopefully make the right contribution to that company and to that board. So 
you know, it's less about the money and more about the contribution that you can make. If at the same time you make some money, great. And I've been fortunate that the companies that I've been involved with are doing well financially. And so I'm going to be benefiting from, from that. But that was not the driver of getting involved with, the, with a few boards. In fact, one of the other companies that I got involved with, I actually made an investment and that's probably didn't, you know, that, that's probably not going to be turning out to be positive. But you have to be prepared and ready for the fact that not everything you do is going to work out, especially when you go into small companies. Some are not going to be successful and you have to be willing to admit that, well, this one didn't work. And, uh, you know, you invested some money, maybe you lost it or it's going to be a long time before you see anything back if, if you're lucky. And that's just part of the deal. What have you learned about how you learn best and about your learning process? Because you've, you've had so many experiences and so many different sides of, of the market and engaged in different roles. What have you learned about how you learn best? Probably the, the biggest learning comes from uh, talking and, and, and you know, listening to people in terms of what they do and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And listening is a skill that I would say, uh, I always was told when I was younger that I wasn't very good. I wasn't a very good listener. And I always felt like, you know, if there's one thing that I can improve or I can do better, I mean, not that that was the only thing, there were obviously more things, but one thing that was particularly an opportunity for me to improve on, on a personal basis was my listening skills. And I think as you age and you get more experience, you have a natural tendency to get better at that. But probably listening and, and learning from others is, uh, is the most effective way for me to, um, to learn about stuff. You're a conversationalist learner and you learn by observation and by listening. Correct. Yes, and I remember how when we practiced with your team and I discussed in, in uh, Create New Futures the four levels of listening, how this was one of those practices that people loved because we used to introduce this idea of uh, level three and level four listening and then ask people to uh, engage in a, and discover a coaching modality with each other and put this to practice at the same time. And this was one of those experiences that will get people into using and bringing to life, if you like, new brain circuitries that they don't typically use. Often people will tell me after these experiences, you know, not only was this so beneficial for me in, in the work context because I can now practice this um, with my team, this is also something that I was able to, to bring home to my family with, with that focus that you are mentioning about uh, listening and listening deeply to other people. Right. And so, you know, you had asked me when we spoke um, about a month ago on the phone, you know, after I read the book, you asked me what are the things that I remembered about the book or that, um, you know, hit a note with me or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I listed three things. One of them is windows of opportunity and being able to take advantage of them when they, when they, when they become available. Uh, number two, I had the four levels of listening, which is what you're just describing, and how to become a better listener. And then 
And then the third one that I that I wrote down was you know, the transformation agent segment that you have in, in your book, where you talk about how people can recognize, then understand, apply, and then eventually teach or own, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to um, to learn. And that um, that approach to learning in terms of becoming a transformation agent is exactly what we actually did at HP in terms of developing management capabilities throughout the broad organization. When we came to the point of deploying a broad company-wide leadership program, we wanted to make sure that the senior managers not only participated, but actually were the teachers because we felt like that would actually make the program so much more credible than if it was anyone from the learning organization trying to tell people how to do things. We've had a very rich uh, exploration uh, here today together and with uh, much perspective that you bring from your different uh, experiences. If you try to imagine yourself today in this environment, 25 years of age again, what advice would you give to this 25-year-old? As, as they search to find their professional path forward? Well, so I guess, you know, if you're going to work in a company as opposed to doing something on your own, um, my first suggestion would be try to find an area where the industry is actually in growth mode or find a company that is growing and has the potential of grow for a number of years and be a lot bigger than what it currently is. Because when you go into a company or when you go into an industry, if that industry is growing, if there's a lot of opportunities, you, know, you don't have to be a superstar. There will still be opportunities for you. As opposed to if you go into an industry where the growth is very moderate or, or not at all, or worse, if it's in decline, then it becomes um, – you know, very competitive environment where people don't trust each other, where there's not too many opportunities, where the only way you advance is by putting the knife into someone else's back. And that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not conducive to having a tremendous career. So that would be suggestion number one. Then I would say, don't be afraid to take risks. And I realize I say that and it's it's easier for some than, than, than others. But, you know, Try to move into different functions, different roles, different regions, different geographies. Um, try to get as broad an experience as you can get because you never know, you know what's going to be the thing that's going to like be that moment where you just hit something out of the park and where you can put it all together in a way that gives you this great uh, opportunity for, for advancement. And so especially in the early on, the first five or 10 years of someone's career, rather than stay very deep in one function, try to move around in different functions and learn different things, which will broaden your perspective. And then finally, I would say, learn how to work effectively with others. Hmm. No one can be successful by being so smart that you can figure everything out. There's always others that are smarter. There's always people that have more knowledge. There's always people that know something better than you do. And so learning how to work with different people, how to build trust and how to communicate effectively with a broad range of people, regardless of what their styles may be, is the kind of thing that will enable 
any person to have a tremendous career in whatever business or industry they choose to go into. Awesome advice. Find, uh, if you can, a growth company in a growth space. Take risks and introduce yourself to new experiences and uh, new functions and new capabilities building through that. And learn to work effectively with other people and get results through and with other people. Any other final parting wisdom that uh, you'd want to offer in addition to uh, these three great uh, directions? Enjoy yourself and you know, don't get overly stressed about stuff, even when you screw up. Everyone screws up, everyone makes mistakes. If you make a mistake, own up to it, admit that you made a mistake, learn from it, move on, and do it better the next time. This has been a, a rich exploration, and uh, as always, I enjoy our dialogues and conversations, Sam, and thank you uh, so much for being with me here today. Uh, you're very welcome, Aviv, and um, best of luck uh, getting people to uh, you know, learn about uh, creating new futures um, with you. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, grow and develop the people on your team. This is the most rewarding investment you will ever make. Ask, how specifically will we help our team members improve and develop the new skills they need? Second, speak up. Present a point of view. Do not hold back your best ideas. Do not play it safe. As you come forward with ideas and with your best thinking, you'll be surprised with two new outcomes. First, people will listen more attentively to you. And second, you will begin to get new and more ideas. Here is a third action to take this week. Thoughtfully create for yourself alternative and additional sources of revenue. Do not wait for later. Begin to build financial sufficiency and resilience earlier. Build resiliency into all the critical aspects of your work and life. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.